Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Uh, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we started a little bit of a series, I guess it's turning into a series, on ideological possession and uh, what that all means. And that's actually a continuation of some thoughts that we had even before that concerning, um, you know, the, the, the idea of the Kingdom and and uh, what what that really means to be in uh, in search of this uh, kingdom of God, which is an alternative way in which to govern yourselves by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's a mouthful, uh, what that actually means. The problem today is that we have a lot of ideas, concepts, perceptions, uh ideologies that uh, are simply not true, that are not correct. There's facts and information that are in our minds that is not true. There's another part to this is that these facts and information are stored in our mind, on the surface of our mind, in certain parts of our mind, in in the form of words. And these words have different meanings and uh, you know, I've actually added to uh, a video to our uh, webpage on the mind at, at preparing you, and uh, it's a video that's been put together by people who have done a study on the mind, where they've discovered that we, you know, there's mapping of the mind, uh, and there's uh, the, the, both the, the physical body is mapped in the mind and on the surface of our skin. And which we covered in our articles on Capgras and, and uh, have several very uh, enlightening videos up there as well as the article explaining what takes place. It had to do with studies done of people who are amputated and they remap the missing limbs somewhere else on their body. And they don't even know they're doing this, but they do it. So that if you had them blindfolded, you could actually tickle a certain part of their body and they think... You're tickling the fingers on the hand that has been amputated. They don't know you're actually touching this other part of the body or other part of your face. You know, often they map this missing limb on their face so that if you tickle it, they feel the tickle in the amputated limb. You know, that which that seems bizarre, but why is that going on? Why is that so universal? Why do people minds actually do that is it part of a denial process where they you know they miss their limb and then and then there's other dysphorias that take place where people actually think that a limb an arm a leg is not theirs that is foreign to them and they actually hire a doctor to amputate perfectly functioning limbs because to them it's not their limb and they actually have gotten doctors to actually amputate parts of a person's body that they think is not them. Even though you can see it. I mean, it's attached to them. It's their arm. 
And that's that's serious dysphoria. We were just talking the other day. It's legal in in the state of Oregon for a child to have a mutilating sex change operation at the age of 16 without their parents' consent. In the, that Doesn't that seem a little bizarre? At the same time, they want to raise the age of uh, the drinking age, the the age for buying a firearm, uh, because that would be dangerous. You know, it might hurt somebody. They might shoot something off. But they can go in and the state will actually pay for a sex change operation for a 16-year-old without their parents' consent. You know, that's that's mutilation. And so we have this, and they think that's okay. Now, I actually saw a video the other day uh, of, you know, I, I didn't even watch the whole thing, uh, but somebody shared it with me, and I, I looked at it a little bit, but it was video of supposed parents talking to their children about the fact that even though you're born a boy or you're born a girl, those are just assigned by the doctor uh, based on biology. You don't really have to be a boy or a girl. You can have a different gender identity. And they're trying to explain this to small children. And you can see if you if you have any perception Let's, let's put it this way, not any perception, but an unencumbered uh, perception of reality, you will see that they are actually traumatizing those children with this conversation. They are literally abusing those children. They are molesting the minds of those children with that conversation. And they laugh and they joke about it like it's it's perfectly okay. But they're actually molesting those children, violating those children, causing trauma. You can see the trauma in the eyes of the children. And they think they're doing good. And they're actually doing great harm. Most children who, you know, or young people who become, you know, have this sexual gender dysphoria... It's the result of traumatization. And traumatization like that is exactly a part of that same process. But you try to tell them they will not see it. They cannot see it. But these are not what we're going to talk about. But the principles there, when you see these insane things that are going on in the world, the abuse of young people and children and ideas, you start... You, it's very obvious. You say, well, that's crazy. And we're going to look at some of those crazy things that have happened throughout history. And everybody will say, oh, that's crazy. They're insane. They're, you know, there's a serious, serious problem there. But those are the extremes. What about the subtle changes? And like I said, we put this video up of where they've mapped the mind. And when they find out is that if they read these stories, maybe have 3,000 words in the story, or they, or they even read words, and they they cover some ten thousand words altogether, and they're observing the mind at the same time. They're actually recording the activity of the mind. They can actually see where activity is going on in the mind. That when they say certain words, there's activity in a certain part of the brain, and they record this, and then they they analyze this film with logarithms based on when they heard certain words, etc., and they determine that those words are actually activate certain parts of the brain when they hear those words in context. 
and they examined a number of people with similar backgrounds. You know, uh, they they wanted to use a a group that was had a lot of things in common to make sure that there were not other variables that were affecting these people. But they found that the map of words on the surface of the brain were very symmetrical from person to person. And they also found that certain words were associated with other words in certain areas. They were stored, you know, like if you, you know, you say the word top, it will activate a certain part of the brain. But if you say it in context where you're talking about a top of a building, uh, it will activate a part over here where the word building is uh, also recorded in the mind. If you say the word top in relationship to like uh, top of a piece of clothing or or something along those lines, it will be over here in another part of the brain. And then if you say the words clothing, that will also stimulate that part of the brain. And they, they map like almost 900 different parts of the brain and several thousand words. And they compare this to a number of people and they see a pattern. Well, how in the world does a small child who's learning language know to record a particular word in a particular part of the brain? And we talked in a previous uh, program about the fact that they can take mice and teach them a complex maze, take them out of that maze, have them breed and produce offspring, take their offspring back to the maze, and they actually solve the problem quicker, as if there is a genetic memory. So is this pattern in the brain the result of genetic memory? Uh, others will suggest that it's telepathic uh, because of the fact that there are following patterns of the people who are teaching them language and they're doing further studies trying to figure all this out. But the reality is, is that if, and this is what why I'm bringing this up, I mean, there's a number of reasons because we're going to come back to these things, but we're going to take a look at, at things like uh, should a Christian run for politics? Should they vote? What's wrong with socialism? Uh, I, I was amazed to find that in the news we have uh, the Baptists and Southern Baptists are about to make a huge split, and we're actually going to. And they brought up this term of the social gospel, and we're going to look at the social gospel, and in relation to what they call Niburian uh, ideas, which all come from Karl Paul Reinhold Niebuhr. Niebuhr and uh, who had a great deal of influence in the last century on Christian thinking. And we're going to compare all this to Christ. And uh, we'll even take a little look back at the Anabaptists. And uh, somebody brought up a question um, on uh, on uh, progressive Christians and the Anabaptists and, and their different ideologies. And we'll take a look at them. But we're going to take a look at all of them in relationship to the actual gospel of Christ and what the early church was doing because it was a very political organization, the early church. It was a government. Jesus was a king and the Christians were doing contrary to the decrees of Caesar. And But what were they doing? And, and we're going to look at some questions that were brought up on Facebook on a very in-depth discussion and we have been putting together bits and pieces of that discussion on a page, which we'll 
eventually share with the network under some title or other. I haven't figured out what title I would put it under. But uh, we probably can't get to all that in uh, two hours because this is this really gets deep and we're going to go on a spiritual journey in this process. Or at least, you know, kind of poke holes in the veil so that you can see where the spiritual light, because ultimately we're not trying to lead you to knowledge. Uh, we're not trying to go through the tree of knowledge and pick different fruit off of different branches so that you can consume that. Because we don't want you to use the tree of knowledge as your source. Ultimately, what the church established by Christ is trying to do is lead you to the Holy Spirit and into a state in which the Holy Spirit may enter into you and perfect you in the ways of Christ. Because without that Holy Spirit, you can't do it. You cannot save yourself. No amount of studying can save you. No amount of studying can enlighten you. You can only be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. You have to learn to eat of that tree of life, that Holy Spirit, and it has to dwell in you. That's ultimately where you want to go. And it's very dangerous to talk about these intellectual topics, these ideological topics, because of the fact that you may start eating of this tree of knowledge. Now, that tree of knowledge that we've made, the it's a metaphor that your brain is the tree of knowledge. You know, all those little branches and what we refer to it as the dendritic tree, and we have links to an article on that and an article on the two trees and and what this is all about, these metaphors of this tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Two separate ideas. Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is your brain. It is the dendritic tree, this, the brain stem. And that brain, we talked about this recently, that there are actually brain cells in the lining of your intestines that are there so that your body functions will continue even if you had a swelling in your brain stem so that you you were unconscious for a period of time and you couldn't use your brain, your body would still function because part of your brain is down in your intestines and in the wall of your intestines. There's actually a layer in there that is a part of your brain. And some people's consciousness will actually reside in that those brain cells and uh, and they don't tell people this that when they're thinking you're thinking up in your head when they're thinking they're thinking down in their stomach they don't tell people because they know that would make me crazy <laughs> but I, I've known somebody like that and that during the process of meditation they said they actually felt their consciousness which they had always thought you know, when they were imagining things or thinking about something, you know, we always kind of look up as if we're looking up into our mind, wondering about something, you know, that's a, a, to, a common reaction. But they would actually think in their stomach. Their perception of things was in their stomach, not up in their heads. And they actually felt their consciousness going up in their body. And after that particular event of meditating, they said from then on they thought in their head. 
And they said, but the, the, the process continued because there were still things they had to discover. There was some reason or other, some trauma in their life where their consciousness and their, they imagined when they were imagining something, they felt like they were thinking inside the core of their being. And of course, that's, you know, Middle East has all kinds of ideas about this and your consciousness can actually move around in your body. And we can talk about that at another time. We want to talk about these uh, ideological silos that are occurring. That's a term that's come up recently where you have these different factions in society that are becoming ideologically divided. And they refer to these as ideological silos. And it's what it is is a mounting dialectic where there's a division in the people. From the the left, they call and the and the right, the alt right and the far right and and the left and uh, ultra left and the Marxist and the and, and way over and the socialist way over here, and they see this dialectic, this division, and it's fueling a rebellious spirit in the world, which will eventually fuel violence. But the reality, and I made mention of this before in a previous show is that you want to rise above the dialectic. And you can't do it. But with the Holy Spirit, you can actually rise above the dialectic and not be a part of the conflict, the them and us conflict, that the devil wants to, the adversary wants to foment in the world today and is doing a pretty good job of doing it, which will bring untold suffering and violence. And we're going to look at a few times in history where this has taken place in the process of trying to understand uh, some of the questions that have been brought up this week. And uh, But again, our goal is to bring you to a place where the Holy Spirit may enter into you and guide you, which is completely separate from accepting ideas. Back to this mapping of the brain. If If I say the word socialism, or capitalism, that's going to elicit an emotional response. It may be a very subtle emotional response. It may be a very not-so-subtle emotional response. But that's, that response is based on association. If I say socialism to some people, they think, great, wonderful, social justice warriors everywhere unite and overthrow the wicked, evil capitalists. If I say socialism to somebody else, they're going to think Marxist tyranny, 100 million people put to death in the last century, evil, you know, progressive, uh, horrible, satanic. They're going to, that's going to, and it's the same word. But in different people, it's going to elicit a different emotional response to one degree or another. That emotional response will connect your mind with other words and other ideas that will affect your ability to perceive the reality around you. So now we're, we're going back to this trauma that these children are experiencing when people are saying these crazy, goofy things to them. And they think they're absolutely saying they think they're being progressive and honest but uh, they're actually uh, destroying their own children long before the surgeon's knife begins to mutilate them. 
uh, or they start taking drugs to change themselves from male to female or female to male. You know, those are extremes. Most of us can see that. There's a larger and larger element that can't see that that is horrendous. Uh, there are people who used to advocate that, who are psychologists that are now seeing the results of that, that are actually destroying these people. The suicide levels have just skyrocketed amongst people. They're way higher amongst those who have the operation uh, and, and the the changes. Even in progressive countries like Sweden uh, that accept this behavior readily, uh, suicide rates are still skyrocketing because nobody's actually... This is this is a cauldron. Somebody wanted to know more about heaven and hell and what happens after you die. Well, the reality is, is you're you're building heaven and hell right here, right now. And uh, so there's a reference to it. I'm not going to go into that because we got a lot to cover here. But uh, there was. Um, we'll take a look at a couple of questions that came up, and and one of my responses. Uh, included the idea that forgiveness and love are absolutely essential to seeing the whole truth. Now, everybody thinks that they're a loving individual and that they've forgiven. But forgiveness is not just for saying, you know, oh yeah, I forgave them. Because you'll find as a person gets older or their faculties begin to diminish, all of a sudden you see this, these stories coming up where you thought you had forgiven somebody, but you hadn't. Putting your resentment in another room of your mind is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is is a rewiring. It is a really vastly changing of the mind and even the body. It isn't just, oh yeah, I forgave them. You know, like you chose to forgive them. The truth is, you can't forgive anybody. To be able to forgive requires divine intervention. And because that that trauma is wired into your mind and in, and therefore into your body. And you cannot just remove it by the choice of forgiveness. Yes, I know in your mind you choose to forgive, but you have to keep revisiting some of these things to check and see if there isn't some residual Judgment, forgiveness is a part of unjudging. You've judged somebody. This has caused this trauma. And and I'm not saying that you didn't have a right to judge them in the sense that they didn't do something wrong. They may have done something terribly wrong. They may have, ter- I mean, like, didn't, wasn't it terrible when they nailed Jesus Christ to the cross? Yet on the cross itself, he not only forgives, but asks God to forgive those who have done this to him. That's very important. See, that's part of forgiveness is that you not only you become pleading the cause of those people who have offended you. You want to get to the state where you cannot be offended. You cannot judge. You do not judge. You do not want to judge. And you have totally submitted to the Holy Spirit. That's tricky because the mind is deceptive. And we'll be right back and we'll tell you why. (laughs) Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, so, this forgiveness and love is absolutely essential uh, for seeing the whole truth. But forgiveness is not just a mental uh, process of saying, yeah, I forgive them. 
it actually goes way deeper. And the fact is, is that most of our mind is is supposedly our unconscious. We we were not aware of it. So in the dark recesses, somebody wrote uh, again. The problem here is not about motives; it's about actions. But the reality is, the problem is always about motives. It's not about actions. Uh, the actions are the result of motives, not the motives the result of actions. Now, I'm not saying that actions don't play an important part because they will. But motives, real motives, which are not always obvious. The same individual goes on to talk about motives can be deceptive and, and subtle and crafty. Absolutely. But it's still about motives. And we and but. Uh, that our motives may be clouded in the shadow of our own minds. We we don't know what our motives are. We think we've got good intentions, but our intentions are not maybe as pure as they ought to be. And that's another thing is motives can be mixed. There could be a part of you that wants to do the right thing, but then there's a part of you that is anxious to... Uh, do the right thing for the wrong reason. And if you want to do the right thing for the wrong reason, the result is going to be affected by your motive. And the same is true that if you want to do something that is actually wrong, you may think it's right, but it's actually wrong. But your motives are pure or purer, uh, you know, because there's degrees of that purity, then... God can turn your actions unto good. And I actually believe that God doesn't always tell you the whole truth. He tells you what you need to know. And so he may lead you to do things that you would normally not do or not say. And I've given lots of stories of how this was where all of a sudden I find myself saying something. And I hear myself saying it and I'm thinking, that's crazy. (laughs) The reality is God wanted me to say that. And and later on, I understood why. But at the time, I did not. I just had to remain faithful to saying what God told me to say. And and sometimes this is a very dramatic uh, thing. This movement of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can't manipulate that. It's not like, you know, electrical plug. You can go over there and you can plug it into the wall and you actually... You know, now you're connected or you plug in your Ethernet cable and now you're connected. But plugging into the Holy Spirit, you don't have any power over that. Holy Spirit listeth where it will. And it will come to you and guide you at times long before you have any right or or, or deserve any assistance of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is not subject to time. It, it may make cho- choices to bless you. And bless you in your life and, and like, like bring you out of drugs or uh, uh, keep you from uh, terrible choices. And it will do that even though you have no right to the protection of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, you never really have any right to the protection of the Holy Spirit or the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You're, you're just not that good. It, it's by grace that the Holy Spirit may intervene in your life, take you out of drugs, take you out of a a terrible uh, pathway or relationships that will destroy you. And uh, 
But, by the same token, every time, because we're complex creatures, we may deny the Holy Spirit. And that's denying the Holy Spirit when it comes to you and it tries to show you what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, and guide you. If you reject that Holy Spirit, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and that is an unforgivable sin. And you will eventually have to repent and receive that guidance of the Holy Spirit somewhere else down the road in your life. And that's what, and you, when they say that the blaspheming the Holy Spirit is unforgivable, it's unforgivable as long as you continue to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is reject the Holy Spirit. You cannot reject the Holy Spirit and get into the kingdom of God. And there's evidence that you're rejecting the Holy Spirit when you, and and Paul gives this list, you know, that you're a backbiter and a liar and, and a fornicator and an adulterer and betrayer and, and all these other things are evidence that you're rejecting the Holy Spirit. Now, some of those things you might do because you were raised in a very traumatic world. Uh, filled with liars and abusers and everything else. And that, through trauma, you have been dragged into this hellish existence. But as you are enlightened, as you become awake, which you can only do if you forgive others and love and sacrifice for others, the same word for love is the same word for charity. So if you're loving others, you will sacrifice for them. So there Christ is on the cross with his last gasping breath, he's actually saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How many of us would have the presence of mind under the same conditions to spend the last vestiges of our life forgiving other people? And and that is that action is the result of a spirituality present in Christ. It isn't the action that saves you. It isn't the action that condemns you. It's the actual intent. And and only God can see that intent. We can only see evidence of that intent that that is manifested in behavior and things that you do. And the problem is, is that we can put labels on things that you do then condemn you because that label sticks. And that actually that labeling is a part of that dendritic tree in your mind where you put socialism over here, things that are bad, and capitalism over here are things that are good. Or in some people, capitalism is over here in things that are bad, and socialism is over here in things that are good. But it's all in the tree of knowledge. And their actual intent is somewhere else. And they may have accepted those ideas temporarily because of trauma, because of denial, because of a lot of things. Unforgiveness, lack of charity, lack of love, lack of faith. And they've accepted those ideas and now they are literally ideologically possessed by those ideas. You you cannot alter their thinking on it. And and I was just talking to my son before the 
the show and I, I talk to uh, Paul, uh, who uh, always helps me get online here to do these shows. And um, there's a story that wanders around the Internet of, uh, and I believe it's a setup, but it's funny. And the guy's talking to his wife and he says, you have a pizza and you cut it. Do you cut it up into 12 pieces or into eight pieces? And she keeps saying she only cuts it up into eight pieces because she can't eat 12 pieces. And he just keeps repeating this. And it's very funny at her expense. But I, like I said, I think it's it's contrived to get lots of hits on the Internet. But the reality is she just cannot see it's the same amount of pizza. It's just more pieces. It's, the amount doesn't change in, in this. And it's funny. And the reason it's funny to people is because we all deal with that. We have these mental blocks where we, in that case, it's really obvious to see that she has a serious problem with understanding amounts and dimensions and weights and what she's, it, it, how much pizza it is. And it's very frustrating to try to explain things to people who just cannot see it. That, what, what the problem is here. And, uh, and we do it with children uh, a lot of times because they haven't figured out certain things. And it's, it's funny. It's funny because it's real. And we do it in our own lives. So now when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we have all these labels in our mind, in our, in our tree of knowledge. And I just said kingdom of God. What does that mean to you? Where do you store those words in your mind? And what other words do you store with it? That becomes a label. And so let's go look at the uh, the Baptists idea and you got southern baptists and baptists now and they're talking about a serious division amongst them because they see one group is moving more towards social justice and a left leaning approach to things and the other one is more conservative so this is a part of that ideological silos that people are dividing themselves up into and it's very easy to do and so you know is but the reality is, it's the same amount of pizza. It's the same amount of improper intent on both sides. And, you know, we can analyze their position and say, well, yeah, socialism is bad. Because that's, you know, for those of us who think that socialism is bad. I'm going to show you that socialism is not bad. Now, it is, is bad. I can show you that socialism is bad, too. That Both are true. But uh, at the same time, both are true at the same time. Because socialism is is only a label based on a definition. What is the definition of socialism? See, if I say socialism to some people, they think of force. Uh, they think of covetousness. And uh, if I say socialism to other people, they think of, you know, social justice. And, uh, and you know, taking away from the evil rich. And, uh, you know, which are all about labels. And so they, they look at that. But socialism isn't any of those things. Socialism is simply a, a political uh, and economic ideology. It doesn't, in the definition, it doesn't say anything about force. It doesn't say anything about covetousness. It, it just says that it's uh, this... This, uh, you know, has this definition of socialism that is this economic 
and uh, political ideology where everything is owned by the community. Well, the truth is, is that the early church, the the ministers, not all the church, because Christ came to return every man to his possession and to his family. But the appointed church, the ministers of the church, they owned all things common. And this is, this is a common mistake that a lot of people misunderstand. And, and, and we even have people saying that Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was not a socialist as we use the term today. But his ministers owned all things common. Same as the Levites before them. They all called themselves bond servants or servants, using a per- particular Greek word that is in some Bibles is translated bond servant, but it actually just means servant. Actually can mean, the Greek word actually can mean slave, but not in the sense of, you know, some... It, it, it's, it is a slave in the sense that they belong to an owner. And see, the Levites are mine, said God, in several places. And we show all this in articles. And the apostles belonged to God. They were separate from the world. And therefore, separate from the state. The church is separate from the state. But the church is also separate from the laity. And if I say that, that's going to conjure up a reaction on a lot of people. The separation of laity and and the ministers, the ordained ministers of the church who are meeting the criteria of Christ. People don't like that. And I've, I, and a lot of people listening, they just got triggered, you know, because they've got these terms stored in different parts of their brain organized over here with other words. And they don't like the idea that the ministers are separate from the laity. But see, in the kingdom of God, the laity is the state. And the power of the state is resting in every man and his family. Because in the kingdom of God, we have returned every man to his family and to his possessions. And so therefore, when that father dies, his possessions go unencumbered to his children. The system of the world, and certainly socialism, there isn't any of this inheritance. You don't even own the land to begin with, much less can pass it on to your children. And, and, you know, everything that is anti-Christ is trying to keep you not righteous in your generation so that your children do not inherit from you. Uh, They don't even want your values to be inherited by your children. So they got you thinking that it's good to send your kids to public school where they teach your children different values. So, but is public school evil? Uh, or is public school good? Well, the truth is, public school is neither good nor evil. Now, evil may come of sending your kids to public school. Socialism is neither good nor evil. But people who seek socialism, based on their intent, will create good and evil. Because good and evil is a choice. It's a choice, and people make choices. Not systems. People make choices. Now, obviously, if you put people in a socialist system, there is a great temptation to do evil. But again, evil is still a choice. Socialism would work fine. You wouldn't even notice it in heaven amongst nobody but saints. There wouldn't be any problem with socialism amongst saints. 
But down here on the earth, where we're not all saints, socialism can be a serious, serious problem and bring about all kinds of problems. We'll give you examples in history before we're done where this is taking place. And other, you know, any kind of centralized power where you're central, you're picking a Saul and you're giving him power of choice for you, which is going away from the kingdom. See, in the kingdom, the choices are in the hands of the heads of every family. And and the land is owned by each family. It's not owned by a collective. But over in the Levites, the Levites owned all things common. If you were a Levite and you owned a house and some land and all this kind of stuff, and that was considered Levite land, it was separate from the rest of the... Because they were separate. They belonged to God. If he sold his land, any other Levite could come and redeem that land. Because he didn't really own that land. Because all Levites were joint heirs. And you you didn't have the true and actual title to your land if you were a Levite. It belonged to the Levites as a, as a whole. Now, the Levites respected the fact that you you own that land amongst the Levites. And so, amongst the Levites, you literally had a legal title to it. And as long as they respected and didn't try to exercise authority one over the other and respected those rights within the Levite community, you that house was your house for all intents and purposes. But if you sold it to somebody else, another Levite could come in and redeem that land back from that person. And so nobody really bought land from Levites, generally speaking. And when the Hasmoneans suddenly said Levites get to own land, then you ended up with men like... Uh, Barnabas, who was known as Hoses, who actually owned land, but in order to become a minister of the church, he knew he had to sell that land. He got the money, and he brought it to the apostles and laid it at the feet of the apostles. People don't understand this. You can go to Baptist seminaries, and you can go to any seminary, and they're not going to show you this, because they don't really understand the Old Testament, and they don't really understand the Hebrew text. They think they do. But they don't really understand. And one of the reasons many of them don't understand, besides the trauma of education, one of the reasons is intent. And we're, we're going to give you examples of how that intent plays out. You know, with uh, people like John of Leiden and, uh, and others in history. Now, one question that was uh, brought up uh, actually on an, a completely different group, and I was going to let them know that I was going to talk about it. I should have done that. But uh, I'll share program with them eventually. I'll, I'll share them links so they can come and listen to this program later. But uh, he asks a, a question. An individual brings up a question on, uh, and I was looking to see where I recorded. Here it is. Retor- uh, rhetorically, the political theology many progressive Christians espouse is Anabaptist. And he goes on to say the rhetoric is anti-empire and Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. So they're against this new world order kind of thing uh, before there was a new world order. But they're saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. You know, there's different degrees of that. But that's basically what they're saying. He says, uh, but in practice, the political theology of many progressive Christians is what he calls Niburian. 
which is not something from Star Wars. It has to do with an individual <laughs> uh, who uh, who taught a particular Christian philosophy. But uh, he goes on to say uh, that is Christians must take uh, the use of power of the state to address our social and international problems. The focus is upon electoral politics and democratic engagement, voting, calling Congress, etc. Jesus may be Lord, but in the this unjust world, Caesar is how we get stuff done. That uh, Niburian uh, realism is what they're talking about, it, uh, which is also called Christian realism. In short, it seems that uh, a lot of progressive Christians want the Anabaptists and the Niburian at the same time. In other words, uh, anti-empire when you need to denounce an administration, but Niburian when you need to win an election. And that was a statement by a guy by the name of uh, Alan uh, Bevere. Um, I don't even know who he is, but it was it was quoted, and they're asking comments on that. And I guess this is my comments. Maybe we should take a look at uh, what this Niberian is. It's 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 there's a guy by the name of uh, Carl Paul Reinhold Niebuhr. And he was born back in the 1800s and died in 1971. And, you know, he's an American theologian and, and, and wrote and talked about ethics. And, uh, but he was also a commentator on uh, politics and public affairs. And he was a professor at another one of these theological seminaries for about 30 years and had a great deal of influence on Christian, some Christian thinking. Uh, and, and a lot of people opposed what he said. But, uh, and as in truth, to be honest, he opposed what he said eventually. <laughs> so, you know, he, he was a prominent leader in the militant factions of the Socialist uh, Party of America. He was, he was a socialist. Although he, he was very much against Marxism, you know, at least hard Marxism, which is, you know, social, Marx was for socialism because he knew it le- led to Marxism. He was for democracy because he knew it led to socialism, and uh, but anyway, so he was a uh, a uh, socialist. But he later on abandoned socialism. He began to see that it was wrong. It's kind of like that. What, what that one guy say that if you're not a socialist when you're young, you have no heart. But if you're not a conservative when you're older, then you have no head. So anyway, he was beginning to realize that there are certain problems with socialism. But of course, he'd been teaching for years before he did that. <laughs> and so when you look at uh, Carl, uh, you have to say, you know, Carl win <laughs> in what context? Because he, he was both pro and cons at different times in his life. Uh, but he said a lot of things into motion. And one of the uh, common things attributed to him. He says, uh, Father, you know, it's what do they call it? The serenity prayer. Father, give us courage to change what must be altered and the serenity to accept what cannot be helped and the insight to know the one from the other. Well, I'll look into that prayer a little bit deeper and say, when you use the word courage to change, how are you going to make that change? And see, 
you can get an insight into the intent of an individual by understanding by what means he's going to make that change. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we're talking about this uh, ideological possession of the mind of the person and the heart and the spirit of the people. And we were looking at some of these questions that have been brought up uh, by people concerning what is the role of true Christianity? How do you do it? And we're trying to navigate around all the labels. You know, whether you're Southern Baptist or Anabaptist or Baptist Baptist or Lutheran or Protestant or Catholic or Jehovah Witness or all these labels that we put on that create this constant, you know, 40,000 denominations and dialectics, none of which in essence have anything to do with real Christianity because real Christianity arises above all this and has only one denominator, which is Christ, and only one motivator which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the reality is is that we're, we're, we're fallen nature. And our motives need to be questioned by us and by those who love us. Because as many as I love, I also rebuke. If I think somebody is going down the wrong road, I have an obligation to say, I think you're going down the wrong road. It's not a matter of me trying to oppress them or uh, or push them down. I'm trying to be objective and try to share with you my vision. This is why Christ sent his 70, which was his Sanhedrin, which a lot of people don't make that connection. Moses appointed the original 70 by the command of God. You know, where did it, why did Jesus send 70 out? I thought he had 12 apostles. Well, he had all kinds of people. He dealt directly with his 12 apostles, but they also dwelt with and dealt with other ministers to the point where they had thousands of people that were no longer eating at the table of Caesar or Herod, but were eating at the table of Christ. And they were able to do this because they followed the command of Christ and his apostles and all the other ministers, because it was way more than just 12 of these people. He had all kind. Of, they just don't list them all, but we know there was at least 70. There was 120 in the upper room. Who are these people? What are they doing? How are they organizing themselves? Well, they're organizing themselves exactly the way Christ commanded that they organize themselves. He said, make the people sit down in symposia, groups of 10, in ranks of 50 and ranks of 100. And until they did, they didn't get any loaves and fishes. But once they did, they had the network established. And now he could pick from the ranks of these, the ministers that serve the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, he picked the 70. And those 70 he sent out all over, out to the lost sheep. He eventually would send them to everybody, but at first he sent them to the lost sheep. Why? Because he's expanding that network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands all across the Roman Empire. And he sent them out with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because they, these are hand-picked people that he sent out with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were amazed at this power. It wasn't like they they were wielding the power of the Holy Spirit like a sword in their hand. But it just was happening. 
It was, and that's the way it works. It's, you don't control the Holy Spirit. It listeth where it wills. Uh, Peter did not have to smite Ananias. He just let the Holy Spirit do it. And the Holy Spirit smited him. The people did not conjure up the pillar of fire that stopped the armies of Pharaoh. That came by way of the holy power of God and Moses. Now, it wasn't Moses' power. It was Moses relying upon God's power. And so you have to realize that I do not have the power of the Holy Spirit, although the power of the Holy Spirit may be manifested around me and maybe even through me, but I don't control it. It, I don't, I'm not taking power. The only way I will receive the power of the Holy Spirit is I set my will down. I choose not to judge or to rule over other people or to control other people or manipulate other people. But out there in the system of the world, that's a different story. But I'm not of the world. But there are many people who may have Christ in their heart or growing in their heart. And they may have the process of repentance taking place in their heart. They're out in the world. And they're they're snared in the world. So what are they supposed to do? Well, of course, from my point of view, from my directive, from Christ, you need to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You also need to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. You also need to learn to love one another. Why? Because that's the righteousness of God. You need to forgive one another because that's the righteousness of God. See, when you say seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that that's a huge word, righteousness. What does that mean? So we're going to take... We're going to take deeper and deeper looks at what that means and what that looks like. And we're going to go to it by looking at things like the Niburians. <laughs> it's N-I-E-B-U-H-R-I-A-N. And it's just a, you know, a creation out of the, the word of Carl, uh, the last name of Carl. And uh, he, he was this commentator and professor of American the, uh, and American theologian. And he was espousing at first socialism and then rejected socialism, but still continued with many of the same ideas that he had before. And and those ideas are, are very, let's create a new word, solistic. <laughs> it's very much like Saul. And uh, where you you have to seize the power in order to get things done. But anyway, he argued that the kingdom of God cannot be realized on earth because of uh, the innately corrupt tendencies of society. Well, society has no corrupt tendencies at all. People in society have corrupt tendencies. So that's an important thing because you, you begin to identify with society and then you start creating labels and you put those labels on your society, the society of the Anabaptists and the society of friends and the society of this and the society of that and the denomination. The reality is society is just people. It's people who can be corrupt. And we are innately corrupt because we are fallen. 
Uh, but now the now we can go over here and look at these people over here and say, boy, they are really corrupt. We're not like those. But then you can be over here and you can be corrupt too. Just not as bad as those guys. So it's not a matter of comparing us to each other because that's part of that creation of the dialectic, that conflict. Our our denominator again is Christ. So we should always be comparing ourselves to Christ. So when we say we don't resent and we are forgiven, have we forgiven as much as Christ is forgiven? No. No, we're not. Are we as as completely uh, cleaned of resentment and judgment as Christ was? No. No, we're not. We may be a lot better than those guys over there, but we're not as good as Christ. And we can, I think we can all agree to that. So, in, in the process of seeking the truth, which Christ is the truth, we're constantly having to look into our own hearts for even the tiniest little bit of judgment, unforgiveness, resentment. And, and these are often hidden under the traumas of our own life. And we are still subject to the tree of knowledge, where by association, say a certain word and and that's evil. You know, socialism is evil. Socialism is not evil. Socialism is a system that may lead to evil, but evil is a choice. It is your choice. And it is my choice. And of each of our choices. Groups do not get into the kingdom of God. Individuals get into the kingdom of God. But Christ commanded that individuals gather in groups. Those are free assemblies. They're not corporations. They're free assemblies. But they are these free assemblies that follow certain patterns of, you know, tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. But gathering in that... Genghis Khan used that pattern. Lots of people use that pattern. But you also have to have the Spirit of Christ and the way of Christ written in your heart and in your mind. It's not enough just to have the pattern. Now, to write the character of Christ in your heart and your mind, that's going to take some soul searching. Like I I said uh, to somebody, you know, Peter denied Christ. He didn't think he was going to do it. Christ knew he was going to do it because Christ could see in the Spirit. He knew he was going to do it. He wasn't condemning them. He was just warning them. Heads up, you're going to conde- you're going to deny me. No, Lord, I won't. Yeah, you will. No, no, I won't. I, honestly, I would never do that. Yeah, you will. You'll do it three times. And sure enough, it happened. Boy, what do you think he was thinking about that night, that morning, and <laughs> the next morning? He was doing some serious soul searching. The fact is, we all deny Christ to one degree or another. And if 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 you don't deny Christ, then you should be able to walk on water. But you have doubt. You have fear. You have trauma. We all do. And so we're constantly... This is why he sent that 70 out. I started saying that. Sent them out two by two. Why? Because the light of one will shine on the darkness of the other. And vice versa. We will help... You know, iron sharpens iron. We will help one another. Well, occasionally when you do that, there's some sparks. <laughs> but don't give up. Our intent is to awaken 
the Holy Spirit in you. Allow, all that is is allowing the Holy Spirit to enter into you and bring awakeness. So you see, <laughs> there's another new word, awakeness. Because, you know, just like the woman couldn't figure out that it's the same pizza, whether you cut it in eight pieces or 12 pieces, we can't see a lot of things. And you can repeat it a hundred different ways and you're not going to see it until the Holy Spirit enters in and, and gives you light where there was once darkness. So you want to, you want a system that is conducive to allowing the Holy Spirit to enter into you. Socialism is not that spirit. It's not that system. Uh, but socialism in itself is not evil. Because it isn't about choice. It's just it's just a pattern. The same as the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands is not good. It's just a pattern. Without the Holy Spirit, you could all end up being Genghis Khan. Invading and, and killing and pillaging. So it's important to understand these these two uh, concepts that these systems, these labels are neither good nor evil. They're all just ways in which we categorize things over here in the tree of knowledge. We don't, we can't, we can't figure it out enough to decide what is good and evil over here. Even though we do it by labeling socialism bad. Or this group over here says capitalism bad. Capitalism's not good or evil. It's just an economic system. It's not even a political system by the definition. It's only an economic system. So that's an important distinction. But it's still neither good nor evil. It allows men the right to the means of production. If you produce it, it's yours. Now, what you do with it, what you choose to do with it, that may be good or evil. But that's that's in a different level. That has not have nothing to do with capitalism. The same as good and evil has nothing to do with socialism. Those are choices. And those choices are based on intent. Now, what intent? Your intent to obey God? Or your intent to not to obey God? People say, it's my intent to go here and do that. Well, really, that's... That's the reason. That's the excuse you have in your mind. Real intent is whether or not you're actually following the leading of the Holy Spirit and the tree of life or are you, are you conjuring up your own belief, your own ideology, your own idea about what God wants you to do. Because God wants you to do something but you have an idea about what God wants you to do, which may be entirely independent of God. <laughs> that is your ideology. That is idolatry. That is the blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, whether you're doing that or not, and I can guarantee every one of you does this to some degree or another, because every one of you are sinners. But I also know that deep down inside, deep down, in the very core of your being, this is where that choice takes place. That intent to eat of the tree of life or not. Now, when you go to eat of the tree of life, in order to do that, you have to come into the light that the tree of life gives off 
and you will be seeing yourself naked. You will be seeing the trauma of your past that you have dragged with you into the future and into the present anyway and will continue to drag into the future unless you learn to forgive and love. And that forgiveness and love is true forgiveness and love. Because forgiveness without love is not forgiveness. Forgiveness without the action of love, which is charity, is not forgiveness. You have to put your forgiveness into action. And when you do that, God will release you from the chains of your unforgiveness. He will forgive you. And then, as you become more and more free in the eyes of God, the Holy Spirit can enter into you and guide you. So, back to this uh, Carl's uh, idea. There's another way they paraphrase, excuse me, paraphrase this little version of, uh, you know, a prayer of serenity is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, well, there's a lot of things you can change, but from God's point of view, you may not change. <laughs> so, so that it's the problem in this statement is the word can. <laughs> because, and this is why, you know, I mean, one of the most, uh, you know, we just saw a political regime with the motto, yes, I can. Well, yes, you can, but you should not. And thou shalt not do these things that you could do, that you can do, but thou shalt not do them. So you, it's not, can you do them? But may you do them? And so this is this is the big question. May you vote? You can vote. May you vote and still be a Christian? Well, people will say, oh, voting, that would be evil. No, voting isn't evil. Voting is just an event. What's evil, what makes it evil is choice, intent. Why are you voting? Well, you will tell me, well, we're voting for this reason, this reason, this reason. reason. Well, maybe. We have, if you want to get down to the real intent, we have to get really all the way down there. Maybe God wants you to vote. Maybe he does. Because you're going to learn something in that process that you have to learn. Maybe he wants you to run for political office because he's, you're going to learn something in that. What you, if you, if you really have the Holy Spirit in there, what you're probably going to eventually learn is that in those high places that you're going to end up, they hate the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's what you're going to discover. But you also may discover how to manifest the Holy Spirit in dark places. See, you don't want to drain the swamp. You want to rise above the swamp. You want to learn to walk on swamp, swamp water, to rise above it, so that you're not too uh, tossed to and fro by the swamp or by waves of the sea or by any of those things, because you're walking in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just saying that. I'm drawing that picture. You don't understand that picture until the Holy Spirit is filling you up. It's not not just touching you, not just causing some repentance in your life, but filling you up. 
and and you're told by Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul and James and John to constantly be testing your intent, your your spiritual walk, and to see if it's really full of the Holy Spirit. Carl also argued that, like I said, the kingdom of God uh, cannot be realized because it's innately corrupt. But now, as we said, it's not, you know, that the world is innately corrupt or that the earth is innately corrupt or that society is innately corrupt. It's that individuals, you don't have the right to change other people. You don't have the right to exercise authority over other people given to you by God. Now, you do have the right to exercise authority over your children. And if you enter into a collective and they elect you to be the leader of that collective, say, you know, like you work for Bymart. Bymart um, is a employee-owned business. You'll have voting rights as an, an employee in Bymart to help elect leaders who make choices in Bymart. Because that, and so you have a right to elect those leaders who are going to get paid by what everybody earns because Bimart is a cooperative. You know, our power company here is a cooperative. And so there's the people who are members of the power company, you know, get power from them. They can vote on the board. Who's going to be on the board? Now it's a, it's supposedly non-profit cooperative. You know, and uh, but it provides electricity. You can vote for those guys, and those guys get money out of what you have to pay in to get electricity. They're paid salaries and wages, and you have every right to vote for that. That is nothing against the kingdom of God. That's in a contractual arrangement in order to get power from a big power company. There's nothing evil in that. But you get to exercise authority over who's going to be on the board. And who's going to be on the board gets to exercise authority who's going to be working in the reception's office. And who's going to be hired to be the uh, the lineman. And that's just an arrangement. So you have every right to vote in that. So what makes that different than voting in government? Now, because government's not just supplying you power because it's a system based on debt today anyway it didn't have to be but they've gone that way uh, because of the federal reserve everybody has become a surety for debt and so <clears throat> it's kind of like uh, if you're in a boat you have a right to row that boat you have a right to make agreements with other people as to where to steer that boat Steer into the waves, steer across the waves. You could drown because it could flip the boat. So you're in that system. You're bound in Egypt in that system. You're a surety for debt. You've become merchandise. What's Christ's plan for setting you free? How did Christ approach it? Did he come out right out of the box condemning everybody? He did eventually condemn things like their system of Corbin was making the word of God to none effect. But what he was doing before that was setting up a system of Corbin that would make the word of God to effect. You don't have a right to go out there and point fingers and condemn other people in their system of Corbin until you're willing to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and start sharing in love and charity 
enough so that you can create this alternative system to provide for the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity. And then your choice to do that will be condemnation enough for the systems that do contrary. You will be putting your light upon the light stand, your candle up for people to see that this is doable. And by that light, you will bring them into condemnation. They're already in condemnation because they were already making the word of God to none effect. But now you will bring them into a visual condemnation because you will be exposing that, no, you do not have to covet your neighbor's goods in order to do this. We can do this through faith, hope, and charity. That's the plan of Christ. That's what he was doing. His plan wasn't come to condemn the world, but in hopes that it might be saved. How is he going to do that? He's going to bring the light of righteousness to the community, to society. And those who wanted to be a part of that society would get baptized like John the Baptist and move in that direction. It was not until the baptism of Pentecost where people could actually change their status with baptism. People want to get baptized today. The Baptists, they're all big into baptism today. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, Anabaptists and and where they they were taking everybody and where they were going and uh, what they were really all about. But uh, we'll, we'll continue with uh, looking a little bit at this Christian realism because... Let's see, we're looking at the time here. Well, well, we'll we'll do that in the next half. We'll talk about where the Baptists went wrong. And I don't want to be exclusive to the Baptists, Protestants, Catholics, Lutherans, whatever. They all made the same mistake. But real quick, we'll look at uh, this Christian realism and this, uh, where he thinks that uh, this human perfectibility was an illusion. That the kingdom of God, you can't do it, he thinks. He says, in this time, in this world, confronted with the horrors and experiences of the Second World War and the reign of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and the Holocaust, that the movement was in part the reaction to this social gospel movement that we had to seize the reins of control. That we had to elect a Saul. That was going to make things right. And now we do it now with terrorists and Islamists, uh, extremists and all that kind of stuff. But it's still the Saul syndrome. It, it's not real Christian realism. It's an imaginary Christian realism that brings about civil rights movements and all these other things. And uh, it's it's not the way we need to go. It's another way. But we'll talk more when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So anyway, welcome back. We're gonna, we're going to take a little bit more look at this uh, idea of uh, glance over at post millennialists because of the fact that that's what the social gospel uh, is really typical of is uh, the people who think of themselves as the post millennialists. You know, they believe that the second coming is not going to happen until humankind rids itself of social evils by human effort. 
Well, right away, that's a serious problem with that because it isn't by human effort that you actually make this happen. It's by repentance. <laughs> it's not that there isn't a human effort, but that you have to have this repentance. It's God's grace that's going to straighten things out. You have to repent and seek the kingdom of God. And that goes back to the, the Baptists and the Anabaptists who said they were looking for the kingdom of God, uh, not the kingdom of Caesar. Well, you have this... You know, the Christian uh, realism saying, yeah, well, we want the kingdom of God, but we have to be realistic about this. So we have to elect somebody who's going to run things. The social gospel people really are kind of like a, a collective Saul, you know, uh, where they're all going to get together and they all play Saul a little bit. And, you know, it's, it's a progressive movement, or at least a wing of the progressive movement that was coming along. And, and there was a few quotes here that I... I threw down in my notes uh, somewhere here that <laughs> uh, we'll talk about um, the this idea of uh, this uh, social gospel and uh, and and Christian realism and the conflict between the the two. And for some reason, I suddenly can't find the quote. I was going to read it to you. Oh yeah, it's Gary uh, Dorian. He's kind of a ethical apologist, uh, Christian, another seminary teacher. Uh, Christian realism inspired no hymns, built no lasting institutions. It was not even a movement, but rather a reaction to the social gospel centered on one person, which is Reinhold Niebuhr. And uh, the social gospel, by contrast, was half a century movement and an enduring perspective that paved the way for modern ecumenism, social Christianity, civil rights movement, and the field of social ethics. Well, I got some ethical problems with some of his conclusions as to what he thinks social ethics are, at least Christian social social ethics are. But um, the uh, social... Gospel was a movement in North America, Protestants, which uh, applied Christian ethics to social problems. Uh, the social gospelers sought this uh, opera- to operationalize the the Lord's Prayer. You know, Thy kingdom come, uh, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I absolutely agree with the Lord's Prayer, but I don't necessarily agree with their interpretation of it. So, but these things like social gospel and Christian realism and Niebuhrism are all um, labels. And, you know, even though some say this is a movement and this was not a movement, there are people who fall into these labels and categories. And people are a lot more complex than the groups that they belong to. And the choice that they make is to intent. I mean, you can... Like I say, a socialist, if you're if you're young and not a socialist, you have no heart. But if you're older and you have not become against socialism, like Carl did, you have no head. You're not you're not thinking. Well the fact is is you don't need a head or heart. You need the Holy Spirit writing upon your head and your heart, and then all the labels really go away, although people will still try to label you in these places. So let's take a look at the Anabaptists. I mean, at least the history of the Anabaptists. 
and which is also part of the Baptist. I mean, Anabaptist is a different group, but we see now, just today in the news, we're seeing that the Baptists are going to be dividing off into two different groups. And, of course, that's uh, that's the way it worked. Many groups uh, held different beliefs, but have uh, several core issues that all agree. they all agreed upon. For instance, uh, most Anabaptists believed in the separation of church and state. That was just kind of a basic thing. You know, you can you can trace their origin back to uh, uh, Zwigli. Zwigli, he's from uh, he was Swiss, and uh, he actually eventually rejected the Anabaptists uh, because he disagreed with some of their beliefs on baptism. Which, see, this is the thing, is that you get this group together and then they start forming a collective belief. And the collective belief becomes an ideology. And people begin to worship the belief rather than God himself. See, God is independent of the tree of knowledge. God is over here in the tree of life. God is the same yesterday as he is today. But ideologies which are born out of the tree of knowledge, they are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, like the branches of a tree waving in, in a high wind, or even sometimes tipped over when the wind gets too great. There, there was this lack of central organization led to these different different beliefs amongst the Anabaptist groups. And of course, it's that, at least that's their contention, but the reality was... It was not just a lack of central organization. It was the lack of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure many of the early Anabaptists had the Holy Spirit coming to them, moving in them at least to one degree or another. And some of them were dealing with real issues and everything. But the reality is is that without that real Holy Spirit and not just the ideology of the Holy Spirit, you, you will be tossed to and fro and create all kinds of new doctrines and divisions. Our goal has to be to have that common Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of things written down in the Bible to kind of give us a checklist to look for. But we, we do not worship the checklist. We need to worship the real God. So we have to be careful on how we apply that checklist. That's there for us individually. And yes, we can use it to help rebuke one another, but we have to rebuke one another in love. That has to be our intent. And we don't even know how to love unless God enters into us and shows us how to love. So, anyway, the, there were other people like the Swiss, Swiss Brethren, who I think they started in Zurich, and uh, they were driven out of Zurich anyway, or early in the 1500s. And uh, they, a lot of them moved to a town in Munster. Some of them just traveled all across. And, you know, it's an individual journey. But one of the guys who ended up in Munster, uh, still early 1500s, 1530, was John of Leiden, who's also known as John uh, Jan van Leiden. Or his real name was uh, uh, Buchels or Buchholz. Uh, it's written a lot of different ways. He he ended up in Munster, and he kind of made himself king 
in Munster and called the Munster of New Jerusalem. And he advocated the overthrow of all the belief systems uh, by violence, if necessary. And, uh, you know, he burned all the books except the Bible. Uh, he expelled people who did not believe as they did. And Munster was a walled city at that time. They had built this big wall so that they could withstand anybody who attacked them. But the attack came from inside. You know, I mean, everybody's talking about building a wall today between us and Mexico. If if you if you just built a wall of righteousness in the hearts of the American people, which is the people went back to a Corbin that made the word of God to, to effect instead of the Corbin they now have in the United States, which is making the word of God to none effect, that they would have a wall that would keep evil out. But they don't understand that. And we've talked about that, you know, in the Peloponnesian Wars, building walls and everything. But Munster had a wall. And unfortunately, the corruption came inside and they, with the, the Anabaptists, and they became so numerous, they were able to take over the the city and then they were under siege. And uh, they went around, did all, they were also polygamous. Now, some of the stories may or may not be true about what went on in there. Uh, because the, to the victor goes the uh, writing the history, but they were became very abusive. Um, I think John supposedly ended up with sixteen wives in, in this polygamous state, and uh, there was a lot of competition, competition and power in, in, in a group of people. And there were good people in there that were starting to say, "This is getting out of hand." You know, the power corrupted John. He just went nuts. Uh, and, of course, we saw power. This is the Saul syndrome again. Now, they may have had some good intent at one time, but they did not have the Holy Spirit. They would not have been doing these things had they had the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't some people in there that had the Holy Spirit, but some of the Anabaptists were kicked out by John and his followers. Eventually, they stormed the city and they they uh, took it back and they tortured him and cut out his tongue and put him in a cage and, you know, they ripped him apart with hot pokers. I mean, it was pretty brutal, but he had been pretty brutal. And uh, they still have the cages hanging there in, in Munster. You can still see the cages. They took the bones out about 50 years later. But uh, uh, it gave Baptists a really bad name. Anabaptists, a really bad name throughout Europe. I mean, they already were under a lot of scrutiny because... The Catholic Church and in some places the Lutheran Church, etc., were uh, and other church groups were state churches, and these guys are saying separation of church and state. But then right away you see John forming a state of his own, New Jerusalem, and he's the king. The state you have to realize that all the power of the state comes from the people. It doesn't come from God. It comes from the people. The people are allowed to give the state power. You can elect a Saul if you want. You know what's going to happen if you read Samuel 8, but you can do that if you want. It's not right, but you can do that. You can have a king. The Bible tells you in Deuteronomy 17, five things to put in your constitution to make sure that he doesn't get too much power, because if he does, he's going to go crazy like John Lydon and start having 16 wives, or in the case of some people that you have given power to, he's slept with hundreds of people. And uh, and raped people. You've had leaders who've done that. Power corrupts. 
And so that's what's dangerous about socialism is it centralizes power. But the same thing can be true of an indirect democracy. It can centralize power. So they say, you know, the Bible tells you to write in your constitution these five limitations of government, you know, in order to protect you. Of those five, only one is in the Constitution of the United States, which is evident by the condition of the world today. And you need to look at these matters in order to get back to the ways of the kingdom, to the righteousness of the kingdom, which is the righteousness of God. So, to be fair, there were other guys like uh, Mino Simons, who was also an Anabaptist, and uh, eventually they became Mennonites. I actually just saw during the break, I, I went to look at the, give a notice to the to the group that had brought that original question that we talked about at the beginning of the show, and uh, I couldn't find it. Uh, but I saw that somebody was showing a picture of a demonstration and and uh, that it was uh, supposedly Mennonites. I, I don't believe it was Mennonites. <laughs> but the caption is, Mennonite Union demands 80-hour work week. <laughs> so uh, this is from the Daily Bonnet, uh, Daily Bonnet, I guess is what they call it. But uh, I'm sure this is tongue-in-cheek, but... Everybody else wants a 40-hour work week or in Sweden now. I think they got like a 30-hour work week or something. Uh, but the Mennonites are demanding an 80-hour work week. <laughs> so, And uh, that brings us to, we just published uh, uh, some new stuff on our page on sloth. And I recommend everybody go to Preparing You and read that. But, so we're we're down to the fact that it isn't these labels that we put on things. Socialism, capitalism, Anabaptist, uh, Christian realism, any of these uh, ideas and philosophies and ideologies. It's the Holy Spirit. That's critical. Yet, in communication, we're talking with one another. But Christ, he talked in parables. He did not explain some of the things we touched on today. Because... You're, you can just take, intellectually, you can take what I say and you can twist it to mean all kinds of things that I, I didn't mean. Because that's over there in the tree. I just put some of these ideas up there and it's now part of the tree of knowledge. And you can listen to it and write it down and take notes. But it isn't part of the tree of life. You want to get over and eat at the tree of life? You have to start thinking differently. And one of the things is is that Christ appointed a church like the church in the wilderness, these men were separate. Now, you have to figure out who they are because there's all kinds of people claiming to be the church. You have to figure out who they are and you cannot do that by using the tree of knowledge, although there are some checklists over there. We we put out some of, the, some of these checklists. Ultimately, you're going to need the Holy Spirit to figure out who's who. But that's a process. So, Christ commanded Way back there at the loaves and fishes, you can read it in Mark, that the people, that the, the his disciples, these are his student ministers, require, make the people sit down in tens, fifties, hundreds, and start caring about one another as much as they care about themselves. And in that process of surrendering your offering, sacrifice, personal sacrifice. It's not your sacrifice that's going to make it happen. But it it's your sacrifice is necessary for God to enter in and make it happen in you. You have to lay down your life in order to pick up 
the tree of life more abundantly. And you have to be very careful of ideological possession, which we'll talk about in the show this afternoon. Um, believe, uh, you know, the ideological possessed believe that those who disagree or simply fail to agree promptly with their ideology must be bad. And I don't know that. So, can a person run for political office? Well, can can you vote if you work for Bimark? You know, vote for the officers that make decisions for the cooperative of Bimart. If you're in an electrical cooperative, can you vote to pick the guys who are going to pick the secretaries and linemen and all that stuff and do the business of the cooperative so that you can buy electricity from them? Absolutely, you could do that. Nothing wrong with that. Now, the good and evil of what you do, that has to do with whether you're listening to the Holy Spirit or deciding this based on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's an individual choice in your own hearts and mind. And that's where good and evil come from. From that intent of whether you're going to lay down your life and your will and accept the will of God or not. Now, can you do that in a system that exercises authority one over the other? Well, now you're in a minefield of danger. Because it is very easy to slip into the idea that somehow or other, because you're in these offices of power, you now, like Saul, can wield power. David was a man after God's own heart, and he was tempted to abuse his power. Many times. But he kept repenting and coming back. Saul ended up falling on his own sword. So if you want to be the Saul and get elected to office, that's the dangerous place to be. You're going to need a lot of prayer and Holy Spirit and humility because you're going to screw up in the Spirit and you're going to need to be able to repent. Now, should you run for political office? I have no idea. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I I could I could talk to you about it and I could give you warnings about it and show you some of the checklists you might want to keep going back to. You know, when that that constitution that the Deuteronomy seventeen tells you to write and put down these five things, you're supposed to write that down. You write it down because people forget. <laughs> and you write it down and you're supposed to have your priests read it to your king, your president, your prime minister, your senator, your congressman, your county commissioner, every day, <laughs> all five of these items that are restricting his power. And it's supposed to be read to him every day, according to the Bible. So, I mean, I'm not going to become a literalist out of this, but the point is, is that every day you will be confronted with the temptation that comes with the office of power. You know, county commissioner's not an executive office. It, I mean, you have certain power over hiring a secretary and stuff, but you're not a lawmaker. <laughs> it's an administrative position. Uh, but a congressman would be, and a senator would be, certainly a president would be, certainly a judge has certain powers, not executive, but it's a judgmental power. Can a Christian be a judge? Can a Christian be a soldier? Can a Christian be a policeman? Can a Christian be a fireman? Well, absolutely. He could be all those things. 
But he also needs to be careful because those are positions of power. All the time that he is any of those things, he needs to focus on the command of Christ to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which includes sitting down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, sacrificing daily in a system of Corbin. Corbin means sacrifice that is based on free will offerings and do so religiously and constantly do this with others in that group who will help read to you daily the the precepts of God which are in the Deuteronomy 17, but also throughout the Bible, the Ten Commandments, and to examine your own intent. Because that individual who wrote, and I quoted from him way back at the beginning of this, he is absolutely right. You know, when he says, motives can be deceptive and subtle and crafty and especially pragmatic. But that is why we are told to judge each other's fruits and to act accordingly if some offense requires some sort of Matthew 18 disciplinary action. Well, now, I underline the word disciplinary here because what are you talking about disciplinary? I can't exercise authority. I can't exercise... I can't tell the people have nothing to... Well, actually, I could tell them you might not want to have anything to do with this individual anymore. As a witness... But I can't command anybody to do that. I I can't even go about and subtly interfere with their process of seeking the, the Holy Spirit. I can only be a candle on a lampstand who talks about these things and talks about these precepts. But they must walk their walk and make their choices. Back when John the Baptist, and this is this is what we'll end up being talking about back when John the Baptist was baptizing people into the kingdom, which did not have the same power as the baptism at Pentecost. It didn't change people's status. It could change Christ's status uh, if it needed changing uh, because he was not just getting baptized. He was following John the Baptist, who was literally high priest. That was the beginning of Jesus becoming heir to the position of high priest because Jesus Christ was high priest and king. When John the Baptist's head was cut off unrighteously, Jesus became the high priest instead of John the Baptist. He took on the office of John the Baptist. He already was born to be king. But John the Baptist didn't even know this. That's why he had to send guys out and say, are you the one? He didn't know that. He said, this is the one to follow me. But he did not know that he was the Messiah yet. Manahan knew uh, way back before Manahan was the last of the Sanhedrin, last of the leaders of the Sanhedrin. Jesus appointed the new Sanhedrin because he was the political leader of Judea. But more about that later. If you have questions, join the network and we'll explain these things in greater detail. God bless.
You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.